Hello, greetings, and welcome to New Horizon, the Mind and Body Connection. I'm your host, Dr. Keisha Ross. We have a great show today for you. We have our special guest, Dr. Nisha Grayman. Before we get started, I'll tell you a bit about her background, and then we can get right into it. Also, please remember that you can text your questions in to ITR and text questions at 682-710-1101. Again, that's 682-710-1101. 1101. Again, welcome. Today's July 24th, and we have Dr. Nisha Grayman, who is a counseling psychologist in Maryland, licensed psychotherapist specializing in African American grief and bereavement therapy. Her private practice, Wisdom Counseling Baltimore LLC, serves adults across the state utilizing a unique structured and integrative approach. Dr. Grayman earned a BA from Spelman College, an MA in counseling from New York University, and a PhD in counseling psychology from New York University. She is a Teaching Excellence Award nominee, an endowed professor, associate professor of psychology and Africana studies, and a former co-director of the Africana Studies program at Baltimore, Maryland Area College, where she teaches and conducts research on the intersections of Black psychology and well-being. Welcome, Dr. Grayman. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing well, Dr. Keisha. Thank you for having me. Thank you for reaching out. Oh, definitely. And this is such an important topic. We talk about mental health on a broad spectrum. But when we think about grief, it's something that everyone at some point has experienced. So this is going to be a really good show today. I think our listeners are going to learn a great deal. So today we'll be talking about understanding bereavement strategies for coping. And we know that grief can impact people in different ways, you know, whether it be emotional well-being, interpersonal functioning, as well as mental health. So let's start with you defining for us the difference between grief and bereavement. Mm, thank you. So I'll give you my my definition, and it's not the definition, not the official definition, but I think of grief as the um, the physiological, spiritual, emotional, and social reactions that one experiences when there's been a relational rupture that is permanent. Um, and the nature of the attachment prior to the rupture uh, can really have a great impact on the way that grief is experienced. When I think of bereavement, I tend to use bereavement and mourning interchangeably. So I think about the process of grieving and how that looks for each individual. Love it. Thank you. Um, so as you said, as you talked about grief, you said many levels there. You said physiological, spiritual, mental, physical. So grief isn't only a feeling, but meaning within the body, there can be experiences there as well. And as you said, bereavement and mourning, you tend to use interchangeably. So while grief can look different for individuals, what are some of the typical responses to grief? Right. So thinking about those areas that I named, the uh, physiological, uh, the perceptual, emotional, cognitive, and social, um, when I'm working with someone, I'm looking for some disturbance that is is causing great distress in those different domains. So physiological, probably the prototypical one that comes to mind for people is sleep disturbance is typically is a common hallmark of grief and a grief reaction along with that can um, 
can be the experience of nightmares. Perceptual disturbance uh, could entail in experiences of flashbacks, either of the death or um, fantasies about the death. Uh, emotionally, you are commonly going to see sadness, although not mm-hmm. always. And I think that relates to complicated grief, which I think we'll, we'll touch on. But sadness would be a common reaction we would expect to see. And probably surprising to people is the experience of anxiety in tandem mm-hmm. with grief. That, um, that, that experience, especially again, if it's complicated, can conjure up a great deal of fear and worry. Uh, cognitively, people often report difficulty concentrating and focusing. And socially, people may have a tendency to withdraw. Um, complementarily, they may have a tendency to become very clingy or to mm, experience increase, right, mm-hmm. which can relate again to that anxiety and the fear of something else catastrophic happening. So one wonderful breakdown and, and just reviewing, as you said, perceptual disturbances could be flashbacks, fantasies of um, the death itself. Sleep disturbance, as you said, is common. So, you know, and also, as you talked about in the body, when we lose someone, like we feel it in our yes. body, particularly yes. if we had a very close attachment, you could feel like a part of yourself is gone or as we call it, heartache yes. in the chest. Yes. Um, tends to be there. And you said in tandem with the sadness can also be anxiety, which makes sense too, because that mortality question can come up, right? When right. we lose someone, we start to reflect on our own life yeah. and meaning, uh, cognitive difficulty. Uh, you talked about difficulty with concentrating and then socially possibly withdrawing or being clingy. And as you said, clingy, I thought about children and not that it doesn't happen with adults, but can you talk with maybe some of the presentations that might be different on the lifespan, like children versus adolescents or adults? Uh, It's interesting. So my expertise is actually with adults only. And so I I don't want to speak about, um, you know, about things I'm not really familiar with, which I'm not familiar, Uh, but I absolutely do see it with adults. Um, a clinginess, it could be toward the children if they have children, um, clinginess toward a partner, any other significant attachment figure could be the object of increased clinginess because again, of the rise in fear of something catastrophic happening to someone else you love dearly. Definitely. So as you talked about that, those are typical, as you said, and not that it's the same for everyone. And we'll talk a little bit later how culture might make a difference with that. But now you can talk with us about complicated grief. So you talked about grief in general. So what makes something complicated grief? Yeah. So again, I'll I'll give you my perspective and it's not the perspective and the, the language that has been used to describe the phenomenon of complicated grief changes and it's debated. Um, the DSM uh, recently decided to go with the language of prolonged grief as a disorder. Uh, complicated grief as a phenomenon, I think, is considered in a, in a broader umbrella even than that more narrow disorder. When I think of complicated grief, I think of, um, I think of a journey that is causing what I would consider to be a clinical level of distress in those 
areas of functioning that I, that I delineated earlier. So, um, a couple of days of not sleeping well and, you know, you rate that distress out of 40, I would put in the non-clinical realm. But if you're rating that distress around the lack of sleep, the sleep disturbance, the nightmares, a 90 now, and I see a constellation of, you know, dis-ease, you know, with the hyphen like that in multiple areas, then I'm, I'm, I'm more inclined to think that we're working with a complicated grief journey. In addition to that, in addition to the level of distress, the nature of the attachment um, can signal a, a greater likelihood that the person is going to be on a complicated grief journey. So if the relationship with the person who has died was estranged, um, abusive, uh, ambivalent, anxious, uh, so thinking about some of the fundamental attachment styles, um, you know, all of the styles outside of secure, which is the majority, um, you have an opening for complicated grief, right? Yeah. So even, you know, all grief is complicated to some respect some because, right, right, because so few actually have this secure attachment and the person was 105 and they lived the right. full life and we're all ready to see them go. So, but I and, think about the distress level and then the nature of the attachment. And that's helpful because for listeners, it's again, but how do I know, like, what are the signs? Because mm-hmm. as you said, some of that should be, is likely there no matter what. Mm-hmm. But from what you're talking about, it's more so the intensity and the continuity of it. If it's going mm-hmm. on for a long period of time mm-hmm. and you're seeing like, okay, I can't focus at work or I'm mm-hmm. having challenges right. in my relationship or my parenting, those are the times right. that maybe you should say, okay, should I talk with someone? And on many shows, even just up the last week, we said that therapy is not only for when things go wrong or when the bottom has fallen fallen out. So even if you lose someone and it's not quote unquote complicated grief, it still may be beneficial. Oh, absolutely. Because yeah, even when we're thinking about beyond the, the, um, the crisis or acute, Mm -hmm. you know, response stage, then you still have all or not still at the same time and continuing the big existential questions, making meaning, integrating this loss into your life. Yes. You know, what does my life mean now? Who am I now? Identity, um, confusion and journeys that mm-hmm. that happens with or without complicated grief. Definitely. And I feel like this last two years with the pandemic, there's been the exacerbation of grief. So in addition to like, if we, even if we didn't lose someone to COVID, other types of loss, there's loss within also sometimes expanded to our profession. Mm -hmm. So doctors and nurses experienced a lot of loss, Mm -hmm. Um, counselors, therapists, you know, helped also a lot of loss, you know, dealing with that. So we see now that it's not only loss that we typically have, but we have it at higher numbers yes. because, of the, because of the pandemic. So that may be a reason too, that even if someone has not lost someone personally close to them, mm-hmm. it still is seeing a lot of loss in general. Absolutely. And and there can be a cumulative effect there. Mm-hmm. So in the the height, height of the pandemic, so many of us, myself included, were operating on autopilot. We were 
doing what we have to do to survive. We were in survival mode. Yes. And it's once you feel that you're out of survival mode that everything can really start to settle. And that's when you can really start to experience the distress and the grief around what we have all been dealing with over the past couple of years. And so when you think about that, there's individual coping. And as you said, just as a country, as a nation, as a global type of experience, so much has been happening. So while loss can be difficult um, and for, for any type of loss, the loss of a child or a spouse or life partner can be particularly difficult. Can you discuss that a bit for us? Sure. So similar to what I was saying about um, the nature of attachment potentially impacting the experience of bereavement, the loss of a spouse, a partner, yeah. or a child is likely to be a loss where there's closest attachment. Although, again, you could have a very conflictual relationship um, with with a spouse and or a child or and or a parent. But those tend to be the three main mm-hmm. attachment, yes. you know, objects that we think about as being closest would be mm-hmm. spouse, parents, and children. And so the thinking goes is that the closer the attachment, the, you know, the more acute the distress could be in relation mm-hmm. to that. And that makes sense. As you said, those are the main attachments we see in life. So sometimes with parents too, even though they might've been older and it's expected, sometimes there could be that feeling of, you know, feeling orphaned, you know, yes. not having, even though intellectually, there might be that understanding that this naturally had to progress and happen emotionally. Yes. There still can be that difficulty. Can you speak to that a bit? I mean, you said it. That's that's exactly it, right? The feeling of being orphaned, orphaned the feeling of for those who had close relationships with parental figures, the feeling that you're now in the world by yourself for the first time. And who am I now? So again, the existential and identity questions come up. Who am I uh, mm-hmm. if with with this major figure gone? Obviously, complicating a loss with a child is the fact that that would be considered an off-time loss. So mm-hmm. as you said, even though intellectually we understand that parents get older and they die, we feel that that is the proper order of things. Mm-hmm. But when a child dies, it feels out of order. And yes. so one's worldview is very likely to be disrupted, again, adding to the likelihood of complicated grief. Definitely. And when we think about the loss of a child, you know, I've done, I I don't specialize in grief, but I definitely have worked over the years with people who have lost a child. and, And that is very difficult. And some people are able to find different buffers because again you don't get over something you don't move on all of these phrases that we have doesn't mm-hmm. explain grief well right mm-hmm. it's just fine it's finding space you know to to continue and for some people there are different things that help them with that what have you found over the years that has been helpful particularly for the loss of a child for some people um well my practice is just 2 years old 
So I don't know if I can even comment <laughs> on what have I found over the years. Yeah. Um, but I think that some of, not some, a lot of our tried and true relational, humanistic, supportive counseling interventions, and even if it's not in a formal counseling space, but having that kind of non-judgmental, accepting, mm-hmm. patient, warm, unconditional, positive regard interaction and spaces that will offer that to you is incredibly healing because the journey is so individualized and there is no timetable. Um, so I find that to be very valuable. Uh, the enactment of ritual and thinking mm-hmm. about um, making meaning of loss ritual psychologically is, mm-hmm. is really valuable there. It's also um, useful in terms uh, with respect to some of those cognitive impairments that we talk about with grief. It gives you something to focus on very concretely and helps you mm-hmm. to, you know, attend to something that's outside of yourself and bigger than yourself. I think when we talk about the grief and bereavement journey as it relates to people of African descent, in addition to ritual, mm-hmm. I think of expressive arts. Yes. Um, that that's so germane to our cultural way of being in a traditional African-American culture and in many, you know, African descent, ethnic cultures that, um, that, that expressive arts or what we maybe what some people call expressive arts have always had a function for us. They actually have been more than Mm -hmm. just art, entertainment, leisure. Definitely. Mm -hmm. So more than the traditional, type of psychotherapy. And we had a trauma therapist on a few weeks back and she talked about that, you know, somatic Mm -hmm. type of therapy Mm -hmm. that is helpful. And you segued well into what I'm thinking of next regarding what you've observed with the intersection of culture and loss. While no racial group is monolithic, what specifically have you encountered working with Black or African Americans who have historical trauma Mm-hmm. Lost through slavery, mm-hmm. colonization, Jim Crow, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that's a really important question. I think, um, right, I think one of the things that I'm I'm ever mindful of of is the ways in which surviving historical intergenerational trauma may show up within the grief journey and context. One prototypical way that I would say is that. I think we've been socialized, particularly black women and my practice focuses even more specifically on black women to swallow pain. I think mm-hmm. the same is true for black men. And so, um, thinking about the trauma therapist who you had on who was talking about somatic interventions, mm-hmm. I think that becomes especially important yes. for people of African descent who have been enculturated into a, you know, a way of being that involves us swallowing a lot of pain, mm-hmm. um, you know, putting others ahead of ourselves. Um, and so I, I think that's, that's, um, that's really relevant. I love that analogy you used though, swallowing the pain, because as you think about that, you really, you can understand think of the that. body, right? Because it's mm-hmm. going in there mm-hmm. and, 
anything that you're taking in, you're consuming becomes mm-hmm. a part of you. So not only intergenerationally do we have the epigenetic effect mm-hmm. of trauma within our bodies, we have our individual life experience just within this life mm-hmm. that we're living now. And our Dr. Kimber Shelton, who was on earlier in the month, also specializes in women. And she talked about that superwoman syndrome. Yeah. So that goes along with swallowing the pain. So when we swallow it, where, where, where does it go? What does it manifest into? Since right. energy isn't created or destroyed, it's transformed. Mm-hmm. So, so mm-hmm. what does it become? Right. It goes into the cells and the tissues and trauma therapists love to say the issues in the tissues. And so we've got to work with those tissues and, and move that around and out. Mm -hmm. And and that's something that black would not that everyone doesn't struggle a bit, but with weight, that's something also too obesity in the black community and particularly black women. So all of that trauma being Mm -hmm. stored up in the cells along with the cortisol, everything that's being released, it becomes difficult to lose the weight. Indeed. And so I would say it's, 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 this somatic intervention is popular, but I think it's especially important for work with Black women is I do integrate outdoor walk therapy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, a way to bring body movement into mm-hmm. healing without spotlighting it in a way that bring, might bring up anxiety. Um, so I'm not going to say go to the gym and work out, although going to the gym and working out and exercise is wonderful. Most people are very amenable to going for a walk Yes, and, you know, going for a walk and telling me about the sounds that you hear while you're walking. Mm-hmm. Mindful so you're, walking. Mindful walking is a big part of my practice and something that, that, um, that I advocate. It's interesting. I'm thinking back to the superwoman uh, complex and how it is a liability in our grief. It is also an asset. It is a coping strategy. And I do pull on it, but it's very tricky. It's in moderation. Mm-hmm. Everything in moderation. I think that that socialization and that strategy does help some of our clients to get up and get out, even if they don't necessarily feel like it. But again, the trick is the liabilities that we are, we know are associated with it, where you're suppressing your own needs for the needs of others. You're swallowing Mm -hmm. your pain and you're not doing anything with it. Yeah. And the lack of self-care. And so movement becomes important. All of the data shows it. Even mm-hmm. just 10 to 15 minutes a day, we know cardiovascular wise mm-hmm. helps that we know for depression and helps yeah. getting endorphins to flow, you know, serotonin, dopamine, all of that. It, it all of the good necessary. things. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we just had a question that was uh, sent in and it goes along with your analogy. When we swallow pain, um, it circles back in a more powerful pain. How, mm. how, how should we handle that? That is our question. When we swallow pain, it circles back That's into more, more powerful, powerful pain. pain. How to handle it? How to handle it? Good question. That is a good question. Step one has to involve 
awareness. And this may Mm -hmm. tap into something that I know you want to ask about later, but the radical acceptance Mm -hmm. um, is a big part of that. And so if you're struggling with awareness, though, prayerfully, you have some good friends and family Mm -hmm. members in your support network who you trust and respect who can tell you um, this something something seems to be going on with you in mm-hmm. terms of um, suffering that that you seem to be suffering in in some kind of way and I don't even know if you're conscious of it or mm-hmm. aware of it. Um, it's really difficult because everybody wants to advise everyone else to go to therapy. There's the meme going around that I'm in therapy to talk about the people who keep <laughs> recommending I go to therapy, but, um, but a therapist or a counselor can help you with that, can help you to, um, to identify the points of pain. What I have learned in my experience of working with grief therapy is that it is a portal for mm. all sorts of pain. Yeah. That you've experienced over the course of your lifespan. And so things that have not been metabolized, that you have swallowed, Mm -hmm. that have doubled in terms of their power and strength, they are very likely, very likely to come up in the therapy room with grief. You may come in presenting for support for grief, but we are absolutely going to have to travel down these Mm -hmm. other roads. There's no avoiding. It it Mm -hmm. just opens everything up. So because that's grief turns your world upside down. Mm-hmm. But that's an excellent point. I love the way you said that, the portal for all p- parts of pain, because you're right. I had a, a client who recently um, lost a, a life partner mm-hmm. and Mother's Day never was a problem for mm-hmm. the client. But then after losing the partner, suddenly Mother's Day has become difficult because mm-hmm. the partner served as a buffer. Mm-hmm. you know, for, for, for that particular mm-hmm. type of grief or pain. So as you said that it's powerful. So loss also and grief also isn't just a matter of people, physical, physical loss, right? You're right. We talked about historical trauma, intergenerational trauma. Yes. We have all of those areas in which there are types of loss. So I think that's the perfect segue into you talking with us about radical acceptance, which is a well-known DBT intervention for managing um, grief. Mm -hmm. And as you talked about radical acceptance, which I'm aware of, can you break that down for listeners who may not be professionals and not aware of that? What is um, radical acceptance? Sure. So um, I I think of it as a, I, I kind of remix it as I do with everything. But radical acceptance is exactly as it sounds. It is accepting what you are experiencing, what you are feeling, what you are thinking, what you are doing without judgment. And it doesn't mean that you excuse all of those things if you're doing things that harm others, or it doesn't mean that you don't acknowledge um, thoughts that work against your healing, but it means that you acknowledge them without judgment. Because that is the first step in terms of, uh, with respect to healing around that and with reducing the anxiety, reducing ruminations mm-hmm. around it, reducing feelings of guilt and shame, which we know are thoughts and emotions that tend to lead us to get stuck. Yes. 
right? So that's not useful. But so accepting what you're experiencing, and for me, um, working with grief, uh, I might use something known as the the grief ball, which is a, a tangled ball. It looks like a you know a, a big ball of rubber bands, and it has mm-hmm. all different emotions and it um, that are prototypical or typical of grief reactions of denial of anger of confusion of ambivalence relief etc etc so the first step is fully acknowledging and accepting what you are first experiencing and then within that really telling yourself the truth about it so mm-hmm. first, what am I experiencing? And then now, what is the truth about that experience, about that thought, about that feeling, about that action? And so I actually have clients go through kind of like a, um, kind of like a maze of, of mantras or, or affirmations to say to help them further accept okay. the reality of what they're dealing with. Mm-hmm. And it does start with, the serenity prayer, <coughs> excuse me, a version of that God grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Because mm-hmm. again, when we're talking about grief, you're talking about a rupture that is physically permanent. Okay. And then going on to telling yourself, this is hard. It's okay to feel this way. It's okay to think this way. Mm-hmm. I can choose how to respond to my feelings and thoughts. So reinforcing the idea that even in the midst of your distress, you do have agency. And that's another yeah. thing that's really important, I think, for work with um, members of a community that have historically had mm-hmm. agency structurally taken away from them and have had yeah. to come up with creative ways to um exercise agency even in the midst of that so some other statements i accept my negative thoughts i accept my negative feelings Mm -hmm. feelings are not always facts very Mm -hmm. important one emotional reasoning yes (laughs) feelings are not always facts and thoughts are not always truth that is really helpful for people who are grieving to remember that this is how I'm feeling and I honor this feeling. I honor the truth of this feeling, but it does not, not, but, and it does not necessarily mean that factually fill in the blank. These feelings and thoughts are not permanent. That's another thing that is very important um, for people who are dealing with grief and bereavement, because we know actually that grief therapy can be a matter of life and death. There are people who, um, have suicidal idea- ideations in response. Mm-hmm. Um, there are people who may attempt death by suicide. And so reinforcing this element of yes. DBT, radical acceptance, which is, you know, very much about helping people to get through the crisis of their emotional storms is mm-hmm. really relevant for people who are grieving. Um I can't control the past. This is important as well. Even as we honor the past and and history is sacred, when people are in the midst of acute grieving, one of the goals is to keep them present focused. Mm -hmm. And again, to try and um, minimize the rumination. Um, So reinforcing that 
you can't control the past is important. I can't change what has already happened. Similar to I can't control the past. I can't predict the future either. Mm -hmm. So going with these feelings aren't permanent. And Mm -hmm. what I feel is not necessarily facts. The fact that you feel this way today does not mean you will feel that way ongoing. And then when I think about our cultural responsive interventions, I do come from, you know, a a Judeo-Christian theological perspective. And it makes me think about we're going to run on and see what the end will be. I mean, I feel like that's a spiritual, a gospel version of that Mm -hmm. same DBT radical acceptance mantra of you know, you don't know what the future is going to be. So you got to run on and one day at a time, one hour at a time, sometimes one, and, minute, at a time. one minute at a time. <laughs> yeah. So those are the statements that I will have clients mm-hmm. practice in terms of radical acceptance. And then following that up with, oh, hold on, with, um, an experience of rest, <laughs> got to yeah. rest. Because all of that thinking is exhausting. Mm-hmm. So yeah, and thinking rest, about your thinking, thinking about your thinking <laughs> is exhausting. So take a nap. I say take a 20, 90 minute nap. I do recommend we don't go beyond 90 minutes because mm-hmm. that brings us back into a deep sleep that can make us groggy when we wake up mm-hmm. and throw but, off sleep cycle and throw off sleep cycles. But 20 to 90 minutes is not suggested to do that. So yeah, take a nap and then also tap into and lean into um, the elements uh, that bring you calm, which we will have discussed in our work together, you know, so who is the person who makes you feel calm? What objects make you feel calm? What place makes you feel calm? Um, What things, what activities bring you a sense of calm? So after you've rested and you rise again, continue to be gentle with yourself and take care of yourself by doing things that bring you some calm. Oh, all, all great. And I'm just going to try to do a little bit of a recap there. So even before you went into the radical acceptance, you talked about the awareness. So one is having that awareness. And if you don't have it, hopefully you have some trusted person to help you with that. Mm-hmm. Something that stood out as you talked about the radical acceptance is accepting it without judgment, which I, I'm totally a proponent of mindfulness. So the non-judgmental mm-hmm. piece, mm-hmm. I'm right there with you. But you also made the statement, it doesn't mean you're excusing anything. And mm-hmm. I think that's important for listeners because we see so much so often that people sometimes hold on to a feeling or emotion or a thought because there's this belief that if I accept this, then it's letting someone off the hook. Mm-hmm. So let me stay angry. Let mm-hmm. me stay irritable. Let me mm-hmm. stay depressed or mm-hmm. whatever it may be. And all of these emotions sit there mm-hmm. within the individual because of not wanting to let go, because there's the feeling that maybe the person that is culpable, they, they'll no longer mm-hmm. they'll have mm-hmm. that level of responsibility. But a person's actions, no matter what they are, they, they're responsible for those actions. But then right. we have to think about within ourselves what's going to happen. So I think that was a great point that you made there and that without the judgment, it helps to reduce the anxiety. Mm-hmm. You also made another great point about recognizing having agency, which is important. So particularly with the Black, the African-American community, 
with historical trauma and continued losses, that's something I'm thinking of now, whether it's George Floyd, whether it's Mike Brown, Eric Gardner, you know, tomorrow, whoever it may be, there is a collective type of mourning that happens in the community. Can you speak to that a little bit with this framework? Mm -hmm. Because sometimes it is a difficult pill Mm -hmm. to swallow, you know, for Black people because so much is happening or maybe just as you had a little bit of rest, Mm -hmm. something happens again. Can you speak to it in that way where we see like the structural, Mm -hmm. systemic injustices Mm -hmm. that happen, the loss of life in in that way? Yeah, yeah. So I think of that... um, within an ecological context. And I think that um, multiple things need to be happening at the same time. So my position within that ecology is as a one-on-one helper. While I'm engaging in the one-on-one help and I'm thinking about, you know, community violence and, and community crisis that fall upon us, um, we're go- going to be focusing on your social support network, your immediate social support network, so friends, family, et cetera. And then there is community level engagement and healing. And that's where we see, again, ritual. We see a lot of public collective mm-hmm. within community ritual after we've had a tragedy. And yes. and that is for our healing. And so I, I would want to see for someone that they're engaging in all of these at all of the levels. And beyond that, you have people who are working on structural shifts and structural ch- changes, and that's their role. So I think it's also, it's really important for people to identify their place and their position and their role and do it with excellence and not try to do everything because when you try to do everything, I think we do nothing. So then you have the folks who are working, working on policy and mm-hmm. restructuring a system that would yes. allow this to happen at all. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, I think in the next circle of the ecology, we have to have people in the community whose job it is to keep us physically safe. Now, I may not be built like that, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you you know, but honestly, I think our communities Mm -hmm. need that. Like, and we've historically had that. And so the idea that we would would not have it now is foolish. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you have deacons for self-defense. You have Black Panthers for, you know, armed defense. You, I mean, you do need a collective within your community who is responsible for <laughs> physical protection, who is concerned with that. And so I think all of those yes. um, need to happen simultaneously. Yes, I mean, security. Safety. Yeah. I mean, when yeah. we think about Buffalo, mm-hmm. when we think of the shooting that happened years ago, I can't remember if it's Alabama or the Carolinas. Mm-hmm. They all are blurring in my mind, mm-hmm. but particularly African Americans that were killed. Mm-hmm. Yes, in spaces that are predominantly black, mm-hmm. unfortunately, you know, there, there can be hate crimes that happen. So we mm-hmm. have to think about that. That level of safety, you know, seeing it in churches mm-hmm. is something that's important in, in organizations. I know like um, that's very important. So we mm-hmm. just have to, I love that you put that in an ecological context. Mm-hmm. So because of that, it lets us know that there's no one thing right. that we have to do. It's like this kind of ripple effect, you know, it's something mm-hmm. that several levels have to yes. be worked on. 
Yes, yes. And, and knowing where, and knowing your position at each of those levels. So while I say know your role and do it with excellence, you have, I think you have a primary role, but then you support the other roles. So my yes, primary exactly. role is the one-on-one intervention, but I'm going to support mm-hmm. people who are engaged in the policy, the grassroots work, Definitely. the activism, mm-hmm. you know, I'm, I'm going to support. Mm-hmm. And I love that point because Sometimes people feel helpless and Uh helpless leads to hopeless. But I always give that level of clinical advisement too, is that you can't do everything. You have to figure out what your specialty area is, what's your soapbox, right? But you can support. So if you're a minister or clergy, iman, whatever it may be, priest, you have to help from that level, but then you can support other areas. We are the counselors, the therapists, the helpers in that way, the doctors, medicine, Mm -hmm. they do it. But then, as you said, we can support policy. Absolutely. We can support boots on the ground. We can support grassroots organizations. So I think that is very powerful Mm -hmm. in terms of collective grieving, because that way, if it's each one teach one, each one reach one. So Mm -hmm. in that way, we feel like we do have agency individually Mm -hmm. and then collectively as a community. That's right. That's it. So we do have another question that um, just came in. Um, This is, I think a lot of people can um, maybe understand this. How do you counsel someone who suffered the loss of a sibling in another country and cannot travel to say goodbye? So, you know, if you don't have the opportunity to say goodbye to someone like with that type of grief how what would you recommend yeah I mean this would fall I can't say how I would counsel someone because the counseling relationship is so intimate and it's so organic and it's so responsive to the to the individual person but I think Dr. Keisha you named kind of like a a foundation of what's going on there is that this is a a loss that doesn't involve the ritual of saying goodbye, which is a closure ritual. Of course, we know even our closure rituals don't bring closure to our grief, but how do you, how do you work with someone or how do you heal when you don't have the opportunity to participate in a closure ritual and say goodbye? I think that that's probably a type of grief that would fall under complicated grief. And so, um, I mean, I can't, like I said, I can't say what I would do, um, because it depends, it depends on the person, but at some point I'm sure whatever we would work on, it would include, um, issues of ritual and processing that, um, that experience and what it means to not be able to say goodbye. Cause I don't know what that means for you. And that may be that the the listener um, who sent that in, that may be something that lets you, prompts you that maybe talking to someone, yes, may be helpful yeah. because mm-hmm. there's things that are left unsaid and, and you may not be able to have that opportunity. So just mm-hmm. having a space for that um, may be helpful. And then as Dr. Graham said, you have an individualized mm-hmm. therapy plan. And that's one thing that is unique to therapy. It's not like necessarily you know, cookie cutter. Mm-hmm. We do have particular, what we call evidence-based therapies, but then mm-hmm. each person is different. So grief, depression, anxiety may mm-hmm. look different for each person. So they'll have an individualized um, plan. But I hope that 
um, that individual is able to, you know, seek some type of opportunity. Or right, right. Because that. again, I think um, what I can say is that that sounds like a type of loss that would fall under complicated grief. And mm-hmm. I do believe that a loss that falls under complicated grief is one that is, is probably um, one where you should seek a counselor or a therapist for support. Thank you. So what advice would you give to anyone looking for help or support in their mental health journey? Um, It could be after the loss of a loved one, or it could also be, you know, living with someone who has uh, maybe a chronic condition. It may not be terminal, but what would you advise for a person in their mental health journey? Ah. That is difficult um, because, again, it's so individualized, but I, I think that we all have to develop our own practice, our own wellness practice. And um, I think once you've developed a wellness practice, you're better positioned to gauge when things are not going well for you mm-hmm. um, internally, psychologically, emotionally. Uh, yeah, I don't, without knowing the specifics or working with the person around the specifics of what it means to live with their particular person with the chronic condition, mm-hmm. it's hard to say. Uh, one self-help resource that I would recommend uh, would be Grief Coach. Grief Coach, uh, okay. Yeah, I recommend it as a self-help resource. I often incorporate it into my therapy because mm-hmm. one of the features is that it allows you to add, I think, up to four people who also will receive texts that will help them to know how to support you. Because a lot of what is challenging in grief is the feeling of isolation. And some Mm -hmm. of what can create the isolation, you may be withdrawn, but another thing that may create isolation is that people don't know what to do or what to say. And so they avoid you um, and they say they felt helpless. And I find Grief Coach actually to be a really good resource to help people who are in your support network to not feel helpless. Excellent. Thank you for that referral. Um, mm-hmm. I'm going to ask a basic question that some people probably want have an idea, but still going to ask it anywhere. Is there a time limited on grief? Because we hear all of these euphemisms like, oh, you just need to move on. Mm-hmm. It's been, you know, time has passed. You should be like all of the shoulds mm-hmm. that are there. So can you talk with us just about that and the process? Yeah, there is no time limit for grief. (laughs) I think sometimes what people are thinking about when they say that is moving with grief. Like you don't move on and you don't get past and you don't recover, even if we use the language of recovery. Um, But you can learn to move with and live with and integrate the loss into your new self, which you are a new person. You're not the same person you were before significant loss. And you can do that. Mm -hmm. Now, how long before people do that and what that looks like, there is no script. There's no prescription. 
there's no standard. The DSM and the psychiatrists and the people who make the DSM think that there is a standard and they think after 12 months that <laughs> you should be back to quote unquote normal and, and making mm-hmm. money because it's a capitalist society, which is really how yes. they're, they're like, are you back to work? Are you back to yeah. work yet? <laughs> That's the sign of it. But you know what? But that's also a sign of avoidance. You have some Mm -hmm. people that may immediately go back to work because that becomes their way of not dealing with the loss. And I've seen that happen too. Absolutely. That that when you have like a prolonged and delayed type Mm -hmm. of grief because the individual never really took time. Mm -hmm. So we also have to recognize that like their surface level signs and symptoms are deeper. So Mm -hmm. you made a great point there like with DSM. So it may look like check. Yeah, they're they're doing all of that, but internally, Mm -hmm. where is that individual? Are they able to trust though? Are they still withdrawn? There can still be a lot of other things going on there. And I think that for the rest of your life, it's very possible you're going to have some vulnerabilities, some sensitivities. You're going to have moments where something sparks, uh, you know, kind of a regression back to a more anxious state. I think that that is not abnormal. And from what I have learned just from hearing other people's stories, you never get over the loss. You never forget the loved one. Mm -hmm. One of my dear friends from college talked about her grandmother and, you know, her, um, the transition that she was going through. And the grandmother had many children. One of the children died and the grandmother, as she was preparing to transition, so she never forgot that child. She thought mm-hmm. about that child her entire yes, life, even yes. as she went on yes. to have many healthy children. And so just, I think it's important for people to know that that's normal um, and that you're not crazy. You are not abnormal for right. missing your loved one and mm-hmm. hurting over their departure. And and what you said there, I think, is also cultural differences. Mm-hmm. So even though we are here in America, there's many subcultures mm-hmm. in terms of how people deal with grief. So for some cultures, it may be like, yes, you need to move on. And then others, it's like, take your time. Mm-hmm. And that leads me to also think about, you know, there's grief in general. And a person may experience grief who does not have a mental health disorder and has never had a mental health disorder. But sometimes mm-hmm. that can now be the stressor in like mm-hmm. a diathesis stress type of model where mm-hmm. like now it produces mental mm-hmm. health disorder. Mm-hmm. And then we have those who already have a mental health mm-hmm. disorder where grief mm-hmm. can be an exacerbator. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? So if a person already has depression, anxiety, mm-hmm. or a SMI, mm-hmm. a severe mm-hmm. mental illness, mm-hmm. How my grief now impact that individual? Yeah, I mean, I mean, think go back to those five cluster of symptoms that we talked about: the physiological, perceptual, emotional, cognitive, and social. Um, both, you know, the two most common uh, ailments, depression and anxiety. Many of the features are features that overlap with features of grief response. And so, uh, you know, when we think about depression, we might think of uh, a, a fatigue that someone has. Fatigue is also mm-hmm. common in grief. And so your fatigue may be intensified. In anxiety, we think of someone who is ruminating or worrying and fearing the future. And 
grief is also, uh, you know, mm-hmm. a situation that causes us to do that. So that may be intensified. So at least when one is in an acute stage of grief, and I do think there's, there's no time limit, but I do think that there is a range of, uh, you know, of when the acute stage mm-hmm. um, is happening in acute distress. Yeah. But during periods of acute distress, right, you may see those symptoms that are tapped into your pre-existing depression, anxiety, um, mm-hmm. elevated, and that needs to be addressed and, you know, monitored over time. And, you know, they may level out, there may need to be some switching of the intervention, mm-hmm. um, but that's not uncommon. That okay. is not uncommon. We're getting, we're, we're, we've gotten a lot in, but we're, we're getting close to our wrap of time. I can, and I cannot believe to- it. I <laughs> You said it would go quickly. Yes. But I I was just thinking oftentimes, like in our Western society, you hear the Kubler-Ross model um, stages of grief with like um, bargaining, Mm -hmm. denial, Mm -hmm. anger, depression, Mm -hmm. um, acceptance. So that's more so like to this culture. Mm -hmm. Are there any specific like models that you would like to share or you think is helpful for folks to just like conceptualize or think about grief? Oh, I, I do really, I mean, I, I think of grief as one of the ultimate, if not the ultimate spiritual journey that a human being can take. It is an existential crisis that, um, you know, some in the faith would call a dark night of the soul. Um, and it's one that will open you up to uh, your shadows and you're mm-hmm. going to need to do some shadow work. So I think fundamentally, I do think of grief as an existential and a spiritual mm-hmm. crisis and journey. And my role is to companion yeah. on that journey. And And within this culture, <clears throat> the larger, I would say, culture and not the sub, Mm -hmm. there tends not to be a lot of talk of death. And I think this Mm -hmm. becomes a challenge. Like anything, what we avoid, we become phobic Mm -hmm. of versus more so embracing it and and talking about it as an aspect of life, you know, thoughts, feelings that might arise about it and not necessarily waiting until there is a loss. I think sometimes that's a challenge in our culture that you just don't always hear talk about death, dying. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I mean, even when you say that, again, thinking about it from my perspective of death as an existential and spiritual and a philosophical quest in a capitalist society such as this, there's not a lot of time for contemplation and reflection and philosophizing. The, the focus is on producing, being a producer. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go, go, go. Right. And even again, as we think about, uh, the ways in which we determine the degree of severity of your suffering in this mm-hmm. context, a lot of it relates to your ability to be a producer. You know, yes. to get back and be a widget, um, <laughs> which is, you know, right. I mean, that's just, and someone yeah. said, and I agree, they said capitalism should be in the DSM. <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to be on, on the um, work groups? I'll be <laughs> on that, that work one. group. <laughs> I, hear, I hear you. And, and it's true. And 
my daughter is eight, but I already, she's already had loss. You know, she's lost <clears throat> close relatives. But even prior to that, you know, I've talked about death, you know, kind of that's that circle of life. Mm-hmm. And you can do it at different developmental stages, of course, but because I don't want her to not have an idea and concept. And I know for children, it is difficult because it is abstract, mm-hmm. but at some point, just giving a little bit at a time and as they get older mm-hmm. continuing to have those those conversations yeah yeah having conversations about life cycles mm-hmm. like you said and and that understanding and their their ability to grasp the finality the physical finality connected yeah. with death increases as you know their cognitive abilities increase but right you can introduce children at very young age to um to life cycles and some natural laws and natural philosophy. Definitely. So we are rounding up the hour. So we've had a remarkably um, enlightening, wonderful dialogue conversation today. I know our listeners have, have gained a great deal. Before we wrap up, Dr. Gaiman, as we prepare to wrap up, is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners? Hmm. I think I'll just leave with this this little piece of wisdom of wherever you go, there you are. Though you cannot run away from your grief, mm-hmm. grief will find a way. Yes. And so um, you will probably decrease both the uh, intensity and duration of your suffering if you welcome it in. So embracing. Mm-hmm. A bit, definitely. And, and I know as human beings, we sometimes want to push away anything that doesn't feel good or is discomforting, mm-hmm. but that's a part of the radical acceptance too. Mm-hmm. You know, and mindfulness is that pleasant and unpleasant coexist. Mm-hmm. And when we try to stay in one place over the other, it just becomes a challenge. Yes. rather than, as you said, embracing and learning to integrate. So thank you so much, Dr. Nisha Greenman, for appearing on New Horizons, the Mind and Body Connection mm-hmm. on Intentional Talk Radio Network. If anyone would like to uh, reach out to you, what is the best way to contact you? Probably my website, Wisdom Counseling Baltimore, LLC. So if you counseling Baltimore, it'll come up and then you can email me. So Wisdom Counseling Baltimore. Thank you so much to Dr. Nisha Graham. We have had a wonderful time. Thank you so much for all of the pearls of wisdom. We appreciate it. And we'll have to have you have you back to talk a little bit more about what we can continue to do on this journey, particularly in the Black community, what we can do to heal. Thank you so much, Dr. Grayman, and stay tuned. Um, our next New Horizon Mind and Body uh, podcast will be uh, coming up soon in two weeks. And hold on for Dr. Amala Luncheon and Mr. Terran Calendar for Everyday Lessons Now. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you.